Thank you, brother. <clears throat> well, good morning, everybody. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. The title of this sermon is Christians Love Their Enemies. Christians Love Their Enemies. And once you're at Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Our Lord Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for allowing us to gather in, in safety and freedom and peace to be able to open your word um, and, and you know, read it out loud together and, and dive into it. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word. Remove me as much as possible so that I don't mess your word up. God, this is a, a hard thing you're calling us to do. And so help us. Help us, Lord. May by your word we all be transformed and be made more like our Lord Jesus. And we pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that you would save them through the proclamation of the gospel. God, we just, we love you. We ask you to be with us. We ask that you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Please have a seat. On October 7th of this year, Palestinian terrorists burst into Israel and they savagely murdered 1,400 of my kinfolk. Now, after these horrors transpired, I've watched the news with a very depleted heart for well over a month, especially as I've been seeing all over the world multitudes of people in every nation calling for the destruction of Israel. This whole scenario has brought to the surface anti-Semitism, showing us just how bad and how widespread it is everywhere. I mean, for example, after being victimized with our worst tragedy since the Holocaust, hate crimes against Jews globally has risen 400%. 400% since October 7th. It's hard to, I don't even know how else to say this, but what other group out there sees hate crimes rise 400% after they get attacked? It's just crazy. And so this obviously has weighed heavily on my heart. Those of you who are my Facebook friends probably see my occasional posts. And what I want to do is I want to admit to you up front, I've held a lot of anger for the last month. And I'm going to be honest, I have harbored hatred for my enemy. One day, I even walked out in public wearing my yarmulke, hoping somebody would start something, just so I could repay their hatred. And I'm ashamed of that. I know it's kind of funny, but I was, I was ready to go. I went to Winco in Victorville. Just, and so for that... I mean, I am ashamed because I know what Jesus has said in our text since I was 17 years old. But lately, lately, I've been hating my enemies. 
And for that, I repent. And, and every time I think I've repented, then something else hits the news. Like now people are reading Bin Laden's letter. And I'm like, I'm like and then it comes right back. And so um, I'm definitely, definitely trying to repent over this. Now, I bring this up because there might be other people in here that have been wronged. They've had people that wronged them. And, and maybe you're that person that's been wronged. And because of that wrong, you're bearing hatred. It could be a close relative that broke your heart. It could be a coworker that spread a lie about you. It could be a neighbor that let his dog do his business on your lawn for the hundredth time after you told him to stop. Whatever it might be, many of us are very comfortable hating our enemies, even though we know better. And because of that, we need to hear our Lord loud and clear this morning. Our text is all about this. Now, the point of the text is this. We are to love our enemies rather than hate them. We are to love our enemies rather than hate them. That's that's how you sum this text up. Now, why are we to love our enemies rather than hate them? Jesus gives us two reasons for loving our enemy. First reason is it shows that God is our father. The first reason we are to love our enemy is it shows that God is our father. And then the second reason is it shows the world we are different. It shows the world that we are different. And so we're going to see that as we go through this. Now, we are continuing into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount which is the greatest teaching ever given in the history of humanity. Jesus is teaching us how to be people that flourish. And that just means people who please God. He's showing us that the one who is whole or complete is the one that serves God by imitating Christ. We imitate Christ. We serve God in this present age amid all this evil around us. And we do so with hope. Why? Because we know this world is not our home. We know that a perfect age is coming. And so because of that, we could be faithful people. And faithful people are the people who flourish in the eyes of God. Jesus said we would function like salt, which preserves what is good. And it shows the world God's flavor. We function like light, which, which means our lives illuminate the darkness around us. Jesus said we will let our good works shine so that people can see and glorify our God through our good works. What are those good works? Jesus then told us it's the law. It's the law of God. We keep the law of God in the way that Jesus, the Messiah, teaches us to keep it. The law has not passed away. In fact, it is, it, Jesus says it will not pass away until heaven and earth passes away. Now, the way we apply it today might be different, and Jesus gives us some clues on that. Now, the one that flourishes, the one that flourishes is the one that that keeps God's law in a way that is more faithful than just a surface-level obedience. We obey God's law from the heart. We ponder the scriptures so that we could discern God's heart behind each commandment. That way we can make our heart match God's heart. This will make our righteousness pleasing to God, unlike the fake righteousness of the religious leaders that obey only on the outside for show. Thankfully, Jesus then shows us what it means, what it means to keep the commandments at the heart level. He's been teaching us this. That's the part of the Sermon on the Mount where we're now on, where Jesus is taking us through six Old Testament commandments, and he's doing three things with each one. First, he quotes or summarizes the commandment. Second, he tells us the heart level way of keeping it. And then third, he offers practical application to show us what it looks like. Now, up to this point, he's taken us through five of these examples, and here's what he's taught us. Do not murder also means do not hate people and be hatefully angry with them from the heart. Do not commit adultery 
also means don't lust after people and don't divorce and remarry frivolously. Keeping your oaths means let your yes be yes. Be trustworthy. Eye for an eye is for the judges. But for us, we don't retaliate. We do good for those who oppose us. We go the extra mile. That's what he's shown us with the first five. Well, now we're on the sixth example, which is about how we relate to neighbors and enemies. Should we treat them differently? And that's what Jesus is going to answer. Now, humans naturally would say, yes, absolutely, we should treat friends and enemies differently. But Jesus is going to show us that God has a different standard than we do. And thank God, because if God thought like we do, we'd all be dead because we're all his enemy. We've all sinned against him. Imagine if God hated his enemy, we'd be, we'd be undone. So it's very important that we pay attention to what the Lord teaches on this. Now, admittedly, I think more than all others, this is one of Jesus' hardest teachings. Not hard to understand, but it's hard to do. Now, he's going to first lay down the principle for us. We are to love our enemies rather than hate them. He's going to quote what the law says, and then he's going to quote how it's been interpreted, and then he'll get to the, the heart of the law. So let's look at verse 43. Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is going to be the most complicated of the six examples that Jesus gives from the law. Why is this one more complicated? Because he quotes the Old Testament law, love your neighbor, but then he quotes something that's actually not in the law, hate your enemy. Yet he's quoting them together. And so that complicates this. And what people have tried to do here has not always been helpful when they've tried to explain this. Now, for the sake of simplicity, let's start with the easy part, the part that's actually in the law. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, Jesus is quoting a small part of that. The passage tells us not to retaliate, just like Jesus taught us last week. Here's what it says. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the reason we're not supposed to retaliate is because instead we're supposed to love our neighbors. Now that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, is one that Jesus will bring up multiple times. In fact, he will teach us later that this is the second most important command in the entire Bible. The most important command is love God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Okay, But then the second most important command is this one, love your neighbor as yourself. Both of them together summarize the entire law. Every commandment, without exception, is either about loving God or loving others. Every single one. So, if you love God with all that you have, and if you love others like you love yourself, you will keep God's law. You will keep the commandments. Now, Jesus is not making that point here. He will make it elsewhere. The point he's making here is how we are supposed to respond to our enemies, how we're supposed to treat them. He is contrasting it with how we're supposed to treat our neighbors. How are we supposed to treat our neighbors? Love them like yourself. That's what the law says. Now, we have to remember what love means. A few sermons ago, I took a break from Matthew and I preached through the most important commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And there I explained what it means to love, because we often get it wrong in our culture. Love, as defined by the Bible, it's not emotional feelings. It's not feelings of affection, though those can result from love. 
Love is an action. It's a verb. Love is something that you do a lot more than you feel. Love, by definition, is sacrifice. It is a giving of yourself for the sake of others. And when you love, what you give costs you something. And there's so many Bible passages that show us this. And so I'll just share three of them. This one everybody knows. John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Or 1 John 4.10, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or Paul the apostle in Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I think it's, there, there's a pattern there that I hope we noticed. Do you notice how each of those passages describe love? It's giving of oneself for the sake of others. And it is done regardless of how you feel. Jesus, before he went to the cross, asked the Father if it was possible for the cup to pass let it pass. He went to the cross despite his feelings in that moment. Okay, so love is, it's not our feelings. It's not about how we feel. Being quite candid with you, and I know everybody has their own version of this, I don't always feel like loving my wife like Christ loved the church. But if I sacrifice for her and do what the Bible tells me to do, even if I don't feel like it, my actions are still love. They're consistent with love. But if I have all these feelings of affection and little heart bubbles invisibly coming up from my head, but I don't sacrifice myself for her, and I'm not giving of myself for her benefit, then my actions are not love regardless of how I say I feel. So ultimately, love is based on what we do, not how we feel. So with that in mind, what does it mean to love my neighbor? It means to do good for them. It means to give of ourselves for their benefit even if you don't feel like it. So Jesus tells us, he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. And of course, everyone in his audience would agree with that. They have heard that said, and nobody's arguing with we should love our neighbor. They would all agree. But there's a second half to what Jesus said. They did not only hear it said that you shall love your neighbor, but they have also heard something else throughout the centuries. They have heard and hate your enemy. Now, if you were to search the entire Old Testament with your Bible apps, you will not find that statement in the Old Testament. It does not command you anywhere to hate your enemy. Yet, apparently, in Jesus' day, they believed that loving your neighbor requires what they considered a righteous opposite. And to them, the righteous opposite of loving your neighbor is hating your enemy. Now, again, the Bible never directly tells you to hate your enemy, but they figured that if loving your neighbor was one side of a coin, then hating your enemy is the other side. So if heads is love, then tails is hate. And if the object of love is a neighbor or a friend, then the object of your hate must be an enemy. Now, a lot of times preaching commentaries will be very hard on the Jews and their leaders for thinking this way. But I'm going to tell you this, most people think this way, and most Christians behave this way. Furthermore, it's not as simple as saying that the Pharisees got this one completely wrong with their man-made traditions. There are some huge issues of Bible interpretation that they were considering on this question. And so Jesus, (coughs) 
he is weighing in on those questions. And after he makes his point in our text, he's going to do something unique to this passage. He's going to prove what he said. He's going to prove. He's going to appeal to the strongest argument possible to prove it. And we'll see that when we get to the reasons we're supposed to love our enemies. But I want you to think about that for just a second. Of all the examples of how we should interpret and live according to the law, Jesus saves this one for last, and he gives two arguments to prove it. He did not do that for the previous five. He just stated the law, told you what it really means, and then told you how to apply it. He did not defend what he said. He simply stated it. But here, he offers an argument. He offers defense, which shows he knows he is entering a debate where a lot of thought had already gone into this. And so he's going to make it clear that everybody sees that he is right with this one. So if we don't keep this in mind, it is real easy for us to be dismissive of them back then. But Jesus wasn't dismissive. The fact that he's giving arguments to prove his point shows he's not being dismissive. He's taking their their claim seriously, and he's giving more attention to the issue. So when it comes to hating your enemy, where did this come from? Where did they get this idea? Well, first it starts with how you define your neighbor, okay? Because that's the person you're commanded to love. If your neighbor includes everybody in the whole world, well, then you have to love your enemies too because your enemies would be included by the word neighbor. And Jesus is going to show us that. that. That's the right answer, okay? Our neighbor is technically everyone. And Pastor John did a really good job explaining this a few weeks ago with Jesus' parable on the Good Samaritan. I mean, if you think about that parable, he shocked his audience by picking the most unexpected hero possible, a Samaritan, an enemy of Israel. The most unexpected guy did the right thing when the people who were countrymen would not do the right thing. And the Samaritan did it for an enemy. And so the way Jesus set that up, the audience was forced to conclude something that they didn't want to conclude. He says, which one was his neighbor? They're like, ah, the one who did good for him. You know, because that's not the way they normally thought. But the way Jesus taught that parable, he, he got them to see it, at least for that moment. But that's not their normal, normal way of looking at it. Their problem really comes down to how they defined neighbor. To them, a neighbor was a fellow Israelite. Everyone else in the world was an enemy. So if you assume that narrow definition of neighbor and you're commanded to love, oh, thank you, and you're commanded to love that narrow group, okay, so... So if you're commanded to love that narrow group, then the question is, well, what do I do to everybody else? Well, they're enemies. And think about it. You didn't have Christians back then. Christ hadn't died and raised yet. You have Israelites and you got pagans. And so think about how they would be thinking about everybody that's not an Israelite. They reject the one true God. They worship false gods. They commit all sorts of immoralities. They do all these things that God hates. And so should the people of God love those who spit in the face of their God? I mean, they worship God falsely. Should we honor them? Should we love people who turn their hatred of God into a hatred of his people? Let's face it. The world hated Israel. It always has. And just watch the news. Ever since October 7th, it's just reminded us that uh, the world still hates Jews. And listen, it's easy to hate them back. That's why I said in the introduction, I'm fighting that impulse every day. It's not easy. But I want you to think about how, how I frame this. From Israel's perspective back then, 
the rest of the world were God-hating pagans. And they prove they hate God with their false worship. They prove they hate God with oppressing his people. So, of course, their natural thought process then is, well, we're to love the people of God, our neighbor, and then we're to hate our enemy, unbelievers. And before you start shaking your head at them, I want you to think about yourself. I have lost count of how many people I know, some within my own fellowship, that have told me they're getting ready for war. Now, I'm wanting to assume the best. You mean spiritual war, right? And the answer is, well, I'll tell you what I mean. The world is hating God more and more. They hate us, God's people. They're coming after our kids. So I'm stocking up ammo. I'm buying weapons. I'm building my AR-15s. At some point, the government's going to go too far, and I'll be ready. Now, let me ask you something. How is that any different than loving your neighbor and hating your enemy? How is it any different than what the zealots of the first century were thinking about the Romans? It is to use the exact same thought process that Jesus is rebuking. And so, yeah, we could be dismissive of of these folks, but we think the same way. And just to be clear, I am not knocking self-defense. I defended the idea of self-defense last week. We are allowed to defend ourselves, but the motive of self-defense is a lot different of a motive of war. Even Hamas has deluded themselves into thinking their barbaric actions were self-defense. And then the rest of the world's been deluded into thinking Israel's self-defense is barbaric actions. This world is upside down on everything. But as Christians, we cannot be. We cannot afford to be upside down like them. And and even worse, on social media, my goodness. I mean, some of you are like, why are you still on it? It's not healthy for you. You got to know what's going on out there. It sickens me how many so-called believers, pastors on social media, insult unbelievers, are cruel and unkind to them, and then insult other believers that disagree with them on minor things. They will speak in vile ways. They make fun of Christians that display the fruit of the Spirit. They, they say dumb things, like empathy is a sin. How dumb is that? They mock Christians for being winsome. Since when is being winsome a bad thing? They spew venom at Christians that display niceness. In fact, here's the new one they're saying, that niceness is not masculine. It just shows that we've all lost our spine and we've been feminized. Real men fight back. Real men grow long beards. Real men, real men, real men. And then you just fill in the blank, and almost everything they fill in the blank with is something that is belligerent or hostile and is wrong. Now listen, I'm not telling us to be pushovers. Loving our enemies means we tell them the truth, and we don't give them a free pass to keep repeating lies. We debate them. We call out their lies. We tell them they cannot have our children. We declare to them that God may be true, though every man is a liar. But as we do so, loved ones, we still have to display the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul makes it clear what that is in Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, did you notice of the fruit of the Spirit, love is at the top of the list, which is what Jesus is telling us to do in our text. You also have peace. Peace, not hostility. You have kindness. Kindness and peace are not unrelated to niceness. You also have gentleness. That means we're not war hawks. 
And then you have self-control, which means we don't return insult for insult, just as Jesus showed us last week. My point is simple. By bringing all this up, I'm just showing that we Christians have the same tendency that the Jews had back then. When Jesus is correcting them, he's correcting us. And we need to listen just as carefully as the original audience. Now, getting back to the complexity of this subject, as I said, it comes down to how you define neighbor. And I'm going to be honest with you. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where we are told to love our neighbor, in the context, the neighbor is your fellow Israelite. If you were to go back and read that verse, he says, do not bear a grudge against those in your community, but love your neighbor as you love yourself. So contextually, the Pharisees would say, look, this verse is talking about our fellow Israelites. That is who our neighbor is. But that is not the only place where neighbor occurs. Additionally, there are synonyms for the word neighbor that convey the idea of neighbor. And there are arguments throughout the rest of the Old Testament that show that our kindness and our love must extend beyond just our own community or our own countrymen. And I'll come to those. But before considering those kind of passages, I just want us to understand how Jesus' opponents were thinking. I want you to think of some of what the Old Testament says. Israel was commanded to show no mercy to the Canaanites. Joshua's generation did not love their neighbor, and it was considered a faithful generation. Additionally, you have King David say things like this to God. In Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22, he says, Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Now, how many times in that passage does David mention he hates God's enemies there? Multiple times. So you can see how some might argue that we should hate our enemies. It's not as far-fetched as you might originally think. And as I've already shown, many of us naturally think that way and we speak in a way that is hostile towards those we consider hostile to us. And our words and our actions show it. But here's the thing. It's not as simple as the Pharisees were trying to make it. There are a lot of passages that show that we should not hate our enemy. And if love is due, there might not be some that directly say love your enemy, but remember the definition of love. Love is doing sacrificial good on somebody else's behalf, regardless of how you feel. And since that is the definition of love, the Old Testament does teach us, like Jesus says, that we should love our enemies. Consider a couple examples. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Or you go back to Exodus in the heart of the law, Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If you come across your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you lying helpless under its load and you want to refrain from helping it, you must help with it. Very clear. And both of those are commanding us to do good to our enemy, which means to love our enemy. The same David that wrote that he hates God's enemies with his actions showed that he did not hate his own enemies. Consider Psalm 35 verses 12 through 14, how David treated those who were awful to him. He says, they repay me evil for good, making me desolate. Yet when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. 
I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer was genuine. I went about mourning as if for a friend or a brother. I was bowed down with grief like one mourning for a mother. So they do all this bad stuff to me, but I pray for them, I mourn for them. That's showing love. He's showing kindness to them. I think we all remember when King Saul was consistently trying to kill David, David kept showing him kindness. Many centuries before David, up to a thousand years before David, you have Job also making it clear that he did not hate his enemy. And we have to remember in Job's case, God told all the angels, consider Job, this man is righteous. And so God considered Job's character to be righteous. And this is what Job says about how he dealt with enemies. Job 31 Verses 29 and 30, he says, Have I rejoiced over my enemy's distress or become excited when trouble came his way? I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life with a curse. And so that's what Job shows us. And so in light of that, in light of what we actually see in the Old Testament, look at what Jesus says in the first part of verse 44, or all of verse 44 in our text. He says this, he says, but I tell you, okay, so So love your neighbor, hate your enemy. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So again, this this is fully consistent with what the Old Testament has always said. Yeah, you may have heard that it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, no, you're to love your neighbor, but you're also to love even your enemies. Remember, Jesus as Messiah is giving the true heart of the commandment. And the commandment to love your neighbor does not mean to love your en- or to hate your enemy. It means to love your neighbor and love your enemy. So Jesus is contradicting a popular interpretation of that time. And he's rebuking our own tendency to hate our enemies. Now, you will have some scholars that try to point out that early rabbinic literature has lines that agree with Jesus here. And it's only slightly true when you read them in their context. It is not to the same degree. They still justify hating their enemies. Others will point to certain Roman scholars and Greek philosophers that said things that sound similar, but you read them closely. They're actually mocking this idea. And so really, Jesus' words here are in a class of their own. Now, ultimately, they're bringing to the surface what the Old Testament already teaches. But the way he's teaching this, this is in a a class of its own. Now, we know the Old Testament says that. We know Jesus says it. But you're still probably saying, yeah, but you read that psalm where David hates his enemies. And so you got to tell me what to do with that. And you also brought up the Canaanites being killed. you got to tell me what to do with that. And you brought up in Leviticus 19, verse 18, that the context actually does define neighbor as one in the community. So how do we deal with these? Well, they're not that, they're not that difficult. When it comes to David, he hated those who hated God. That's because as a believer, he loves God and he takes it personally when people hate God. No doubt he considered them his enemies. He said, I consider them my enemies. And they are enemies. But notice, Jesus doesn't say don't have enemies. That's impossible. If you're following Jesus, you're going to have enemies. Okay, so you could consider people your enemies. The people who hate God, you should consider your enemies. But you don't hate them. You love them. You love them. And and make no mistake about that. And even though David says, I hate that these people hate you, God, yet we still see in David's actions, despite how he feels about them hating God, he still does good for them. So even in his actions, he shows that he loves his enemy. When it comes to Leviticus in the context, you can't just limit the definition of neighbor to that one passage. The Bible gives us the broader definition that I already showed us. Additionally, 
A command to love your neighbor does not automatically roll into a command to hate your enemy. That's an assumption on their part, an assumption that is unjustifiable. And then finally, when it comes to the Canaanites, we got to understand something unique was happening there. God was using Israel as his instrument of judgment against them for centuries of the worst kind of evil imaginable. Israel's sword was no different than the waters of the flood. That's what you have to understand. The flood wiped out the world in judgment. Israel's sword wiped out the Canaanites in judgment at the command of God. So because of that, the passages about loving your enemies did not apply there. This was a special one-time circumstance that only applied to the Canaanites. Once Joshua's generation was passed, they were to deal with their neighbors and enemies according to the passages that I shared earlier. And even Deuteronomy tells us that. It'll tell us that when it comes to the Canaanites, you got to get rid of them. When it comes to everybody else, you can make treaties, you could do all this stuff. And so again, a very unique, unrepeatable scenario. So I want you to think about this. In this complex debate, the Pharisees leaned wrongly into passages that had a specific application, and then they ignored the passages that apply in all times. So they're looking at the, the ones that only deal to one generation and one event and say, see, we can hate our enemy, but they're ignoring these commands that deal with us all the time. So Jesus is correcting their misinterpretation. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do good for those who hate God and hate his people. That means to love them. And then he tells us, for those who are persecuting you, pray for them. Now, somebody persecuting you, that means they, are, they mean you physical harm because of your faith. And Jesus does not call us to go to war with them, but to pray for them. And listen, our Lord is no hypocrite. He practiced what he preached. Concerning the very people nailing him to the cross and insulting him, look at his prayer in Luke 23, 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive these people who are nailing me to the cross. Stephen prayed the same thing, the first martyr, as he was being stoned. And many Christians throughout the ages have imitated our Lord and shown the same love. I think of the founder of Voice of the Martyrs, uh, Richard of Vumbrand. Uh, he was imprisoned by Russian communists in the 1950s for being a Christian. And his prison guards would beat him severely for praying. They'd walk by, if they looked through the window and they see him praying, they would pull him out and they would torture him and they would beat him and beat him and beat him. Now, after months of this, a prison guard walks by again, sees him praying again, just gets enraged, kicks the door open, grabs him and says, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep praying to your God when every single time it just means I'm going to beat you possibly to death? And Richard's answer was, I was praying for you. And then the guy let him go, closed the door and then walked away. He didn't get beat that night. And I don't know if that guy became a believer, but I'll tell you that would put a guy in an existential crisis. This man I've been torturing and I beat him every time for praying. I'm beating him for praying for me. That's what it means to love your enemy. He was following what our Lord said. So I think with all that, we understand the principle. You can't reduce your neighbor down just to only those you like, okay? But in the same way we're to love our neighbors, we're also to love everyone including our enemies. We pray for them regularly. And if, if we don't, then we're not keeping the commands of God. Now, Jesus made all this clear in those first couple verses. And by the Lord saying it, that should be enough for us. It's enough for me. Jesus said it. I believe it. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. 
But as I mentioned earlier, what's interesting is he's going to go further than just stating it and applying it. He's actually going to prove that we must love our enemies rather than hate them. He's going to prove it by giving us those two reasons I mentioned up front. And the first of those reasons is actually the strongest argument you could possibly make. And I think the reason he's offering proof like he is here is because he cares about those who got it wrong. They didn't get it wrong because they wanted to twist scripture. It's just what made sense to them. They, they were wrongly dividing the scriptures. So he's going to show them what right looks like. And he's going to pull out the checkmate of all checkmates to show them they, they're not right. And, and, it, and it will show that what Jesus is saying in verse 44 is the only statement that could possibly be true on this subject. So let's look at the, the first reason. Loving your enemies shows that God is your father. That's the first reason we should love our enemies. And that is the nuclear option. We will see this in verse 45. Let's look at it. You know, in verse 44, he said, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. Now verse 45, he says, so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The first thing we need to notice is that the purpose of loving our enemies then is, quote, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, don't misunderstand this as him saying you become God's children by loving your enemies. No, that would be works-based salvation. You're already God's children. God is your Father because you were saved by faith. Now that you've been saved by faith, you are to live in a way that shows that God is indeed your father. You prove yourself to be God's children by loving your enemies. And how do I know that? Well, Jesus calls God your father. He's already saying your, that you, be, may, that you would be children of your father in heaven. Jesus is already presuming that God is your father. And if he's doing that, that means you are God's children. And listen, you don't become children by good works. You become children by being born. You didn't somehow do works and then your parents said, you know what, I'm going to give birth to you. No. And likewise, you don't do good works and then God makes you born again. He makes you born again and then you do good works. And like with your parents, you're born of your parents and then you carry on their characteristics. So the fact is, we do good works because we're God's children. It is showing that we're his children. The purpose of loving our enemies then is to show the world that God is our father. Now, <clears throat> why does this show that God is our father? Have you ever heard the phrase, like father, like son? We reflect our parents. Children reflect their parents. First, they look like them, and then they act like they were raised to act. We have some of their characteristics. Well, if God is our father, then should we not act like him? Should we not imitate his character? Would that not show that we are his children? Of course it would. And so herein lies the first and most profound reason that Jesus is right. You ask yourself, what does God act like? How does God treat his enemies? He is good to them. He's good to them. <clears throat> and Jesus says when we are good to them, we are acting as children of our father. And notice the first word after he tells us this. The first word is for, okay? So that we may be children of our father. He then says for. The word for always gives you the why of something. For lets you know why. Why are we children of the father when we are good to our enemies? He says 
For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's what God does. And if we are good to our enemies, we're imitating God. For most of history, most of the world has hated God and rejected God. They give credit that should only be given to God. They give it to gods that they make up. Or as humans today like to give credit to themselves. For most of history, mankind has done evil upon evil, and yet God has not immediately destroyed them. Jesus makes it clear. God makes the sun shine on the evil and the good alike. Related to that, he sends his rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, both of these are talking about food, God providing food and resources. The rain waters the earth so that plants can grow. The sun provides the warmth and sunlight that the plants require to grow. This then causes the earth to grow food so that we don't die. Yet the peoples of the world take this gift from God and then give credit to fertility goddesses and gods of wine and grain. People, God gives the world the gift of marriage and then they pervert it with indiscriminate sex and then invent a goddess of love to justify their perversion. Jesus' point is that even though the world deserves to be destroyed for rejecting God, he still gives them grace, not saving grace. Okay, I have to make a distinction here. He gives them what theologians call common grace. That is grace that is given to everyone. He gives them rain and sunshine, seed time and harvest. He gives the peoples of the earth intelligence. He gives us the ability to make governments. He gives us food and and marriage and family. And all these things help us have a stable life. This is given to all people everywhere. And he's giving it out of kindness. Does the world deserve these gifts? No. Because of our sin, we deserve another flood. Though next time he says it will be by fire. But God, for thousands of years, keeps giving these amazing gifts to humans that hate him. He even gives them to people who are going to misuse those gifts to further their own sin. Paul appeals to this very fact to try to convince pagans to abandon their paganism. In Acts chapter 14, he's preaching to the pagans of Lystra. And after doing a miracle, they think he's Hermes. And so they're trying to worship him, and he puts a stop to that. And he's trying to convert them to the God of Israel. He tries to convert them to the Messiah, Jesus. And in Acts chapter 14, verse 17, speaking of God to these pagans, he says, Although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy, it was God that gave you this. So believe in that God, not your paganism. That's what Paul's getting at there. Now, some people will be like, but wait a second. We do know the Bible tells us God will judge his enemies. And at times he he mentions that he hates those that he's going to destroy because of their sin. And that is true. But that is a matter of eschatology, which is just a fancy word that means the end times. When God makes everything right. That is talking about the time when God rewards the righteous with resurrection. He gives us forever rewards, and then he forever punishes the wicked. God has given us glimpses throughout history with smaller judgments that we call days of the Lord, which will lead up to the day of the Lord, right? But with those punctuated moments of justice, that's that's what God does. He shows us what's coming. But those little moments of justice are not the day-to-day mode of operation of God. 
Okay, what is his day-to-day mode of operation? It's to give common grace. It's to give that rain and that sunshine. That is what he does day by day. The judgment of his enemies is his prerogative, not ours. And that will happen at a final climactic moment. We can't imitate that, nor should we. Instead, we're supposed to look around and say, what is God doing today? What is God doing right now? He is providing seed time and harvest. He is giving them intelligence. He is providing marriage to those who will take advantage of the benefits of it because it provides stability. He provides families. In other words, God gives more to his enemies on a day-to-day basis than we could ever give to our enemies. And if we are God's children, we should reflect God's character. We should imitate God's actions and his actions towards his enemies is sacrificial giving. It's love, it's patience, it's long-suffering. And I want you to consider what Paul tells us about imitating God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So notice, we're commanded to be imitators of God as children, that's why we imitate him. And then how do we imitate him? By walking in love. And what's the example he gives? Of Jesus giving himself for us. Now I want to ask you something. Was that gift of salvation given to you while you were an enemy or after you were already a child? Well, to, some, to, to answer that, let's go to Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we we be saved by his life? He saved us while we were enemies. So if we are to be imitators of our God, if we are to be children of our Father in heaven, then we will show great love on uh, on behalf and to our enemies. Why? Because that's what our Lord did for us while we were yet enemies. That's how he made us into children So what right do we have then to not love our enemies? None. Every Jew, and this is where Jesus' argument really is just the checkmate of checkmates. Every Jew believed that the law itself was a reflection of God's perfect character. And that's true. It's true. The law itself is a reflection of God's perfect character. So if Jesus can show that God's perfect character is to love his enemies on a day-to-day basis, that ends the debate about whether or not we should love our enemies and what the law actually teaches. If God's character is to love his enemies, our character must be to do the same. There's no way the Pharisees were right on this. No chance. And this proves that though the debate might be complicated, here's what you do in a complicated debate. You get out of the weeds, you stop firing scriptures at each other as if they're in disagreement. They can't be in disagreement. Get out of the weeds, rise back up to your first principle. Go back to your first fundamental beliefs and then go back to the scriptures. And what was the fundamental belief? God is good, God is perfect, and his law reflects his character. Okay, His law reflects his character. And so... If we follow God's law, which reflects his character, and yet we see God's character is to love his enemies, then if we keep the law, which matches his character, it means we will love our enemies. You see what he's doing here? See what he's doing? He's making it clear that we will not love our neighbor and hate our enemy. That's not how God does it, okay? God loves both his, uh, God shows his love to us, right? God loves his enemy, 
And by the way, he loves his people with special grace, the grace that saves us. He loves the world with common grace, those things I mentioned. What that means is, yes, your love for your family and believers is going to be a deeper love than your love for the world, okay? But we're still to love the world nevertheless in the same way God does. That is how we keep his law because his law matches his character, okay? That is what he does. He's an amazing God. And as his children, we should act like him. So loved ones, when we are tempted to hate our surrounding world and think that the solution is to be hostile and be preparing for war, ask yourself, are we imitating our Father in heaven? No. What did your Father do for our our enemies and his enemies today? He provided food and another day for them to breathe oxygen. So what should you do? You should seek their good. You should pray for them. Most importantly, you should pray for their salvation and then do good for them so that our gospel witness will make sense to them. I mean, after all, you're telling them that salvation is available because God loved his enemies and gave his only son for them while they were enemies. Wouldn't it make more sense if that message comes from a mouth of someone that is also modeling love with their own good works on behalf of those who hate us? Indeed, it would. The message would match the messenger. Now, God loving his enemies is the only reason Jesus would need to give. Again, case closed, checkmate. But he's actually going to give a second reason as well. And it's one that once you read it, you're like, oh, that's common sense. But most people don't think about it. That's why he has to say it. So the second reason we should love our enemies is it shows we're different than them. If we don't love them, then we're just like them. And that's not a good place to be. And he's going to use two examples to illustrate this. The first example is in verse 46. He asks this. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Man, he cut straight to the heart on this one. It's like he's saying, what in the world are you thinking? Are you really patting yourself on the back for loving your neighbor? Are you really expecting to stand before God and get all these countless rewards for doing good things to people you like and people that like you? I picture the listener saying, yeah, why not? (laughs) And perhaps some people here might be thinking the same. But then Jesus drops the hammer. Don't even tax collectors do the same? Now, he's not talking about the IRS. During the first century, tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were your own people that sold you out and joined the enemy. They helped the enemy steal all the money of your people. Imagine being oppressed by a foreign enemy and then you have your own countrymen actually help the enemy oppress you further. That is what tax collectors were. They violated God's law by treating their brothers and sisters this way. They actually hated their neighbor. Furthermore, they despised their God and rejected him. They would rather be loved by the Romans. They took the side of God's enemies. So if you want to talk about the most hated people in first century Israel, it was the tax collectors. The average person considered no one to be more evil than they are. Yet Jesus is saying, take the most evil person you could think of. They're like, tax collector. Okay, so take the most evil person you could think of and ask yourself this. Do they do good things for the people they like, for who they consider their neighbor? Do they do good things for the people that reward them? Yes. Even the tax collectors do good for those who like them. They do good for the Romans. So if you only do good for those you like, how are you any different? You're not. 
When I was a high school teacher, I used to put this in a little bit harder of a way, but I was following Jesus' lead. Um, But I wanted the kids to think about this. I had them interpret a quote, a secular quote, that suggested doing good things for enemies. And the students were like, no, no, man, I never do good things for my enemies. I take care of my friends and my family, but my enemies, they're my enemies. I fight my enemies. Because, you know, they all think they're tough, little punks. But anyhow, and so, so after they said that, I'm like, all right, Hitler. Okay, I see you, Hitler. Good to go, Hitler. So that's how you feel, huh, Hitler? They're like, why are you calling me Hitler? And they'd get all offended for a second. And I'd say, hey, Hitler was very nice to the average German. And to his friends, he built them mansions in Bavaria with gold-plated elevators. Now, to his enemies, we know what he did. But man, he was good to his friends. And by your own admission, you're no different than him. He took care of his friends. And he hated his enemies. And then they would say, yeah, but I haven't killed millions of people. And I said, yeah, and at your age, he didn't either. At your age, he didn't either. The only difference between you and Hitler is he was given control over a powerful country at a later time. But before he ever got that power, he thought just like you. So don't pat yourself on the back. Your goodness is no better than Adolf Hitler's. And that did get them thinking, okay? They kind of walked out like, man, I suck, and that's good. That's what they needed to think. And I hope it gets us thinking, Now, I bring up that as an example because that's closer to how they would have felt about a tax collector back then. I'm picking the evilest guy we could think of. And if you like your friends and hate your enemies, you're just like him. But there's also another example because the tax collectors were apostates. They were those who fell away from the truth and turned their back on God. If you only love those who love you, then you're no different than the Jehovah Witnesses. No different than the Mormons. Or let's put this in 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 a more... In our face type of uh, example, you're no different than the progressive evangelical that is angry and raging against the church and is out there doing everything they can to harm us. They've apostatized, they've turned away from the Lord. They're trying to get everybody else to turn away from the Lord. And you know what? They love their friends too. They're good to those who are good to them, but they consider us enemies, and that's why they speak about us the way they do. I don't care how devoted you are to the Bible. I don't care how religious you think you are. If you do not love your enemy, you're no better than that evangelical progressive heretic. No better at all. And if apostate isn't bad enough, Jesus then gives a second example to make the same point. Look at verse 47. He says, and if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Now, Here, Jesus moves not just, he's not talking just about doing good. He's going to go to something as simple as courtesies. Like, hey, how's it going? Courtesies, greetings. Now, for the Jews, we greet with shalom, which means to wish peace and wholeness on someone. They would not say shalom to Gentiles. They would not wish peace on their oppressors, but they would gladly greet their brothers and sisters with shalom. Well, Jesus says, you know, these Romans that you hate so much, You do realize they do the same as you, right? They greet their friends and they ignore their enemies. If you insist on hating your enemy, you are no better than a pagan. And that's what he means by Gentile here, pagan. So think about the indictment of this to his audience. He's saying if you really believe that God's perfect law tells us to love our neighbor and hate our enemy, then you believe God's ethical standards are no greater than the standards followed by the pagans that hate God. That's what you're saying about God. Do you think that low of your God? Do you think that low of his law? 
No, if you really believe that God is good and if you believe that his law is perfect, if you believe it is a lamp to our feet, then the way we live should be heads and shoulders above the ethical standards of the world. And loved ones, this goes for us too. There are people of our society that are in full-scale rebellion against God. They're in rebellion against creation itself. They are hostile to us, yet they will greet their fellow progressives. They will be courteous to their own. They will do good for each other and, and try to support each other in their community. If you treat them with disgust and disdain, are you any different than they are? Apparently, your willingness to do good to people is no better than their willingness to do good to people because your good works are only being given to those you like. They do the same thing. Do we think so low of our salvation? Do we think that our new heart from God keeps us at the world's level of love? Do, do we think that God's love poured out on us does nothing to our own ability to love? No, it increases it. If our standard of love is no greater than that of the lost, then, then we think that God's love and salvation did nothing for us. That's what it's showing. So may we instead imitate the love of our God, a love that is given to enemies. With that, Jesus has made his point. He has proven his point. Now he concludes not only this point, he includes this whole section in verse 48. What he says here applies to both our passage this morning and all other five examples that he gave. It sums it all up. The entire section, remember, is what does it mean for us to keep God's law as God intends, to keep it from our heart? Well, Jesus wraps it up in verse 48 by giving us a compass. This is a compass that points to true north. And so I know I've preached like six sermons on these examples. It's not easy to remember all those details. Well, this one compass will steer you right as long as you remember this. Now, you should remember everything else and take good notes. But if you forget them, verse 48 will still, still do you well. So look at verse 48. Let's look at the compass. Jesus sums this all up by saying, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, notice the word therefore. Therefore means in light of what was just said. Okay, so in light of everything that was just said, therefore go do such and such. Well, in light of everything Jesus has said with these six examples, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, do whatever matches the character of God. That's what he's saying. That's why this is a compass. Just ask, what would God do? And then do it. Let's think of these examples we've seen. Would God ever murder someone? No. He will execute justice, but he wouldn't murder. Would God ever wrongly hate or be angry at someone? Never wrongly. Okay? Would God commit adultery? Would God lust after people? Would God frivolously divorce his people and claim for himself another people? Would God keep, oh, would God keep his oaths? Aren't God's words trustworthy? Does God repay evil for evil? He'll repay evil with justice, but never with evil. God does not repay evil with evil. Does God hate his enemies on a day-to-day -day basis? No. He upholds life with his common grace. And therefore, we should do the opposite of murder. God is faithful to his people. Therefore, we should be faithful to our spouses. God's words are absolutely 100% reliable. So our words should be trustworthy. God is long-suffering and endures insults and hatred from adversaries. Because he does that, we should be willing to walk the extra mile and give to those who ask of us. God provides sunshine, rain, and food for his enemies. 
So we too should do tangible, self-sacrificial acts of love for our friends and enemies. In other words, this compass is nothing less than calling us to the imitatio dei, or imitation of God. If you look at what God does out of his perfect character, and then you do the same, you will be keeping his law, both the letter and the spirit of the law. That is what Jesus means by perfect when he says, be perfect. Perfect is probably not the best translation. The Greek word is teleos, and in this context, it better means wholeness, completeness, flourishing. See, God is complete. He's whole. He's perfect in his character, okay? Now, some people think when Jesus is saying be perfect, he's commanding us to moral perfection, which is an impossible standard, which then makes us say, oh, we need a savior. We need Jesus who is morally perfect. We need his righteousness imputed to us. And that is true, but that's not what he's saying here. He's telling us that we've got the word of God. We've got the Holy Spirit of God. We have what we need to imitate him. And if we do, if we imitate him, if we ask what does God do when it comes to these things, then we will be those who keep the least of God's commandments and teach others to do the same. We will be those who function as salt and light. We will be those who flourish. Without a doubt, we will be those that live with the righteousness that is far greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And so I do pray. I pray that we've learned from our master in this first chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. I do in some way apologize for this. I've preached 17 sermons on one chapter, which is my record for a single chapter, and I hope to never break this one. But this is a chapter that Christ just packed so much truth in. So may we be those who live according to all that our king has taught us. Now, for anybody here who is not a Christian, I'm going to say something similar to what I said last week. You've probably noticed in this text that Jesus set a very high bar for us. You might be thinking, why do so few few Christians obey this? Perhaps you've been turned off by Christians that hate their enemy rather than love them. Look, they're going to answer to Christ for failing to obey. But I also want to just concede that this teaching is easier said than done. Okay, so I would say be a little patient because this is not easy to do, but all Christians should be striving to grow into this. Now, those who don't want to grow into this, those who refuse and are being stubborn yet claim to be Christian, yeah, they're going to answer to Christ for this. But the real question is what about you? What about your sins? What about your hatred of your enemies? In so doing, as I've already shown, you have a character no better than Hitler's, a character no better than that of Hamas. Also, what about all the commands of God that you've been breaking since childhood? You want justice in the world, right? But what about justice against yourself? Because it's coming. Justice is coming. And God's justice, it is an infinite justice. It's a permanent justice. It's eternal. All sin must be permanently judged. But this is where the good news, the gospel of our Lord Jesus comes into the equation. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he entered his own creation as a man 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life, never sinning, not even once. He exhibited the character of God flawlessly. He loved his enemies. He prayed for his persecutors. Even more than that, he took the guilt of all the sins of his enemies, of all those who would believe on him, and he carried their penalty with that rugged cross all the way to Golgotha or Calvary where he died in our place. That's what he did for us. Then he rose on the third day, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and because of that, salvation is in him 
alone. If you believe on him, all your sins are forgiven because he paid the debt and he gives you the credit of his perfect righteousness. Righteousness. So Jesus tells you, he tells you, he offers you this salvation. He says, repent, which means to turn away from your sins. And then he calls on you to believe on him with all your heart and surrender your life to him as the Lord. He promises if you do, you'll be saved. You will be saved. You will get eternal life. You will inherit the world to come. You'll be forgiven of all your sins. You get all these gifts. And then you will be given the chance to imitate our amazing Lord where you get to love both your neighbors and your enemies. But if you turn away from him and walk away from this, his offer of salvation, then the only thing that awaits you is infinite justice. Because that day is coming. Right now, God has been good to you, giving you more time to repent. But a day comes where that just ends and he has to be the judge. And he's gonna bring you to task and you will be condemned for all eternity. We don't want that. So turn from your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. We're going to pray. You could pray your own prayer to God, telling him that you are turning to him and you believe on him. And if you mean it, you'll be saved. And then come talk to me or any of the leaders afterwards, and we'll tell you what comes next. But with that, we're going to pray.